This message by Ray Ortland was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Ray serves as the lead pastor for Emmanuel Nashville. As Pastor Bill has said, we are Keith and Lori Thomas. And prior to moving here, a little over a year ago, we lived in the Nashville area. In 2014, we were a broken and hurting family with a tremendous amount of fear and uncertainty looming over us. Our daughter, Megan, was a member of Emmanuel Nashville and had been sharing with us the renewal, encouragement, and hope she was experiencing by sitting under the preaching of Pastor Ray Ortland. We certainly needed all three. Uh, feeling led by God to change our church environment, we visited Emmanuel Nashville with our daughter in August of 2014. It was clear we were intended by the Lord to be there. For us, this commenced a season of personal healing and renewal through the shepherding of Pastor Ray. We testify today of our gratitude, of our eternal gratitude to Ray for that gift. For three years, we sat under Pastor Ray's teaching and engaged in gospel community fostered by his shepherding. During this time, we picked up many pearls of wisdom that we still carry with us today. Statements such as, and these are all quotes, do you want to be impressive or do you want to be known? God dwells among the contrite and lowly with reviving grace, never by compromise. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Gospel culture preserves gospel doctrine. Pastor Ray doesn't preach anecdotal recipes for living. He preaches the word of God, pointing us to the God whose grace far outreaches our capacity for failure. Now, lest you think that being at Emmanuel is always swimming in the waters of deep theology and scholarship, um, there is a fun, lighthearted, and very joyful side to Pastor Ray. Um, we've heard about his early years in California as a sea and ski tanning lotion model. Um, we, <laughs> we've heard more than a few details about the other girl in his life named Nixie, his dog, the most beautiful lab in the world, right? <laughs> okay. And then we've also heard from the former hippie, Ray, who says, and I quote, in heaven, I'm going to have long hair and a ponytail. <laughs> so, <laughs> and of course, there is the classic Ray um, Emmanuel mantra, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Anyone can get in on this. <laughs> so, um, however, when we arrived at Emmanuel, we weren't necessarily lacking in biblical knowledge, but oftentimes the weight of legalism can cause us to check the box without checking the heart. Pastor Ray reminds us that God did not give us the law for our okayness he gave us his son for that. Pastor Ray will have no part in legalism. Thank you, Pastor, for preaching to our hearts. The kindness and gentleness with which Pastor Ray delivers the truth of the gospel, the full gospel, makes it easy to believe, and I quote again, that nothing can maneuver, nothing can outmaneuver the mercy of God for us 
if God intends mercy for us, and God has shown us great mercy. As for he and his wife, Janie, they uphold a view of covenant marriage that inspires and encourages. We have fought for and often fought against a biblical view of marriage. They've shared wisdom, joy, and hope for what marriage can really be. Ray and Janie, um, when Keith and I, we want our marriage to be like y'all's when we grow up. <laughs> um, know that Pastor Ray loves this church and he loves you, Pastor Bill and Sherry. Um, when we decided to move to Knoxville, we met with him asking for recommendations of a church that we could, should consider. Um, Cornerstone Church was the first on, our, on his list for us to, to visit. So it's our humble privilege and honor to welcome you, um, Ray and Jenny, back to Cornerstone, and thank you for coming. Thanks, guys. That's so sweet. Thank you. I would really like for them to form a team everywhere I go. Just keep saying that. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you all for the privilege of being with you. Thank you to Pastor Bill and the leaders of this church. If you're ever in Nashville on a Sunday morning, we would love to have you come and worship the Lord with us at Emmanuel. Please do so. If you come, I would love to meet you. I'm, all, I'm the old guy at the front, so just come look for that guy. I would love to meet you and say hi anytime you're in Nashville. Now let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. This, is, this might be my favorite passage in the entire Bible. And as we go into a new year, this passage is a perfect fit for, especially for us Americans, we love our country, but we see our country sailing into troubled waters. And America is going to need more and more Christians who aren't freaking out, but who have steel in their spine, sparkle in their eyes, and can face the future unafraid and help other people to find that same strength in God. This passage is perfect for anyone sailing into troubled waters. So please follow as I read. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come. Hold that thought. Things to come. The future, whatever it holds. Why don't we decide by God's grace for his glory right now at this moment, okay, I'm going to stop fearing the future. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Wow. What if that's true? What if that actually, what if we've parachuted into a universe where the love of God is ultimate reality? What if the laws of physics are not ultimate, but the love of God is ultimate? What if the energy actually driving the universe right now is the joyous love of God? Hmm. That's a whole new way of seeing our lives. There are basically two ways for us to see our lives. One way was articulated really well by Jean-Paul Sartre in his play, No Exit. He said, you are your life and nothing else. What did he mean by that? He meant you are all you have. You are all you have to fall back on. Your future is limited to your potential. You can never take a break because there's nobody else there for you. And you are, your existence is the sum total of your choices, and when you die, that's it. It's over. You are your life, and nothing else is factored in. It's one way to see your life. The other way to see your life be becomes real when the gospel <clears throat> enters in and this new awareness, this new consciousness, this new sense on the heart, you, you realize there is more to you than you. Because the gospel tells you you have been united with Christ. So, yes, it's true we, we have no excuses. There is no justification for people like us in God's moral universe. But Christ has come to us. Christ has given himself to us. He has written your story into his story. There's a whole new context for your story. And your future is now defined not by your ability to cope, your ability to cover your failures, your future is now defined by his cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit because you've been united with Christ. So Sartre said you are your life and nothing else. God says you are in Christ and you need to be concerned about nothing else. Those are, those are really different ways of seeing your life. 
You're going to see yourself in either of those two ways, either having to make yourself, define yourself, justify yourself, satisfy yourself, or Jesus enters in through sheer grace for the undeserving, and he redefines you. He becomes your new identity, your confidence, and he is the wardrobe into your, the Narnia of the endless love of God, and your future is this adventure into more and more and more and more of the love of God for you. That's what Romans 8, 31 through 39 is saying. This is, this is our inheritance in Christ. We have every right to believe this. Jesus died to give this to us. We have no right not to believe this. So this passage is... It's just not possible to read this and... And, and not say, oh my goodness, God actually loves me personally. Because I'm inclined to think God loves y'all, but me, I am such a loser, I am such a spectacular sinner that I have defeated the love of God. I'm the first one in history, but I managed it. So God loves you, but not me. No, how can I, how can I read this and think that? How can you read this and think that? God loves you personally. He not only loves all of his elect, John three sixteen. he not only loves the whole world, God loves you. God enthuses about your future. If you are in Christ, the deepest, most rugged, most enduring meaning of your story, no matter what you've done or what you, has been done to you, is more and more of the endless love of God. He is not tired of you. He is not wishing he hadn't gotten involved. When he sees you coming, he's not looking at his peripheral vision for an exit strategy. He loves high-maintenance sinners. He sees us coming with all of our endless need. He just gets motivated. He is not depleted. He is not diminished by giving to us. He is filled by giving to us. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Clearly, the implication being, and more grace, and more grace, and more grace. So all he asks is that we would open up to his love and cherish and revere his love the way a faithful wife cherishes the love of her husband. But God himself at the cross removed, he already himself removed every reason why he shouldn't love you. He didn't bring you 99% of the way into his love and then you have to close the gap with that 1% from something of your own. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So God loves you personally on that rock-solid basis so that you will love him personally. And God loves you powerfully as well. God's love is not a weak, pleading love down on its knees that might not work out. God's love is undefeatable. If you are in Christ, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. We've sinned against him. That does not stop the love of God. We've sinned against the clear teachings of, of the Bible. That does not stop the love of God. We have sinned when we were capable of a better choice. That does not stop the love of God. We have sinned against the help of the Holy Spirit. That does not stop the love of God. The love of God is powerful, and it's his commitment to you. There is no equal 
to the powerful love of God, not even you. You've met your match. You might as well just say, okay, Lord, you win. You're going to love me. Okay. So if you're turning to Jesus with a willingness to be loved, that's basically Christianity. Turning to Jesus with a willingness to be loved endlessly. Then he promises to love out of you everything resistant to his love and love into you everything receptive of his love. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, said it really well. We cannot love grace into our child nor mercy into our friend. We cannot love them into heaven, though it may be the greatest desire of our soul, but the love of Christ, being the love of God, is effective in producing all the good things which he wills for his beloved. He loves life into us. He loves grace and holiness into us. He loves us into covenant. He loves us into heaven. We don't know what 2019 holds, Except this. It will be an endless adventure into the love of God. And Bill read from Luke's gospel, the year of, of, of the Lord's favor. Traditionally, Christians have referred to each year on the calendar as a year of grace. Capital Y, capital G. So this year of grace, 2018, is about to become another year of grace, 2019. And until the Lord comes again and returns to take us to be with himself forever, we're going to go through one year of grace after another. So that's what this passage, that's the vision it's casting for us. It's a whole new way of seeing our lives. And we have every right to believe this and swallow it whole. You can't believe this sort of. It doesn't lend itself to that. Let's just go ahead and say, all right, Lord, you win. I'm going to believe the Bible. Now, about the love of God, in this passage, Paul asks and answers four compelling questions, four unanswerable questions about this powerful personal love of God. First question, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? I love the defiance of that. I love the attitude. I love the confidence of it. This is where the love of God takes us, into this. I remember reading a, a man say that the prophets of old were men who were sure of God. That's where this takes us. If God is for us, who can be against us? The Bible is not asking who is against, against us. There's plenty that's against us. Our past is against us. Our fears are against us. Our anxiety is against us. The devil is against us. The whole world is against us. All these odds stacked against us. And if we try to go up against all of that thinking, well, this time I'm really going to do better because this time I, I finally mean it, then we're kidding ourselves. So Paul doesn't ask who's against us. He says, if God is for us, who's against us? God is for you. God is not neutral about you. God is not perceiving you with negative scrutiny. God does not look at you with a gotcha readiness to find fault. God is not waiting to see how things are going to turn out, whether or not he wants to get involved. God knows you completely. The real unrehabilitated you that showed up for church today, that is the you that God knows and God is for 
the real you. This unshockable loving God. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. We don't deserve him. But to God, that isn't a reason not to love us. To God, that's a reason to love us all the more. God is for the undeserving in Christ. In all that God is doing in the wide world today, all over the world today, because think about it, guys. Okay, if God created all things, then all things, and he did, of course, then all things have some kind of relationship with God, right? And if God created all things and all things have a relationship with God, then all things have some kind of interconnected relationship with each other. So reality is like good software. It's coherent. It's all interconnected. And in all that God is doing in the wide world today, with everything that's on his mind, he is thinking of you. He is for you. He is caring about you. He is bending all of created reality around to your eternal advantage right now throughout the universe because God is for you. So, for example, um, so it's about 11 o'clock in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's early evening, oh, I'll just pick this out of the hat, um, Berlin, Germany, okay? There's a lot going on in Berlin right now at, as I speak. Um, let's just say on the, on the street somewhere in Berlin at this moment, somebody's hailing a cab, the cab is pulling over, they're getting into the taxi, they're going to go, go somewhere. I'm gonna say that there's a good chance that's happening like right now. Huh, that event, distant from us, in the way God has woven reality together, that event somehow, in his brilliant purposes and benevolent will, is, that is actually, the way the dominoes fall, that is actually working to your advantage. There's some reason for your benefit why that's got to happen in Berlin right now and Santiago, Chile, whatever's going on there, Beijing, China. That's the world we live in. It doesn't look that way. But the Bible says, God is for you. So it's gotta be working that way. That down underneath the threatening appearances is this glorious reality. God is for you. And because he's God for you, that's the way reality is unfolding. That's amazing. All of a sudden, instead of sort of feeling this nothingness that I tend to walk through each day with, I actually start feeling loved. Isn't that wonderful? Second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Where did God not spare his own son? At the cross. What happened at the cross? The father gave him up. The father abandoned him. 
when all our sin was poured out on Jesus in our place at the cross, God did not rescue him. He cried out in pain, God didn't relieve that pain. He prayed, God didn't answer. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now here's Paul's question about that, what happened at the cross. How will God not, along with him, with that gift, freely give us all things? If God gave us his most sacred gift at the cross in Jesus, is God gonna nickel and dime us now? Is that what we should expect, a reluctant God who's kind of unsure where he stands with us? That doesn't make any sense at all. So what's the point? The point is, if God gave up his son for us all, there is no limit to the love of God for us. We wonder, how far will God go with me? At what point might God say to me, okay, I'm done, that's it. I knew you would be a headache, but I didn't bargain for this. You've gone too far, the deal's off, I'm out. The Christian gospel says that's unthinkable. Why? Because we deserve more consideration? No, because Jesus was abandoned in our place so that God would never abandon us. That's the relevance of the cross for your life right now, real time, moment by moment. God is as committed to you as he is committed to his own son because he gave his son for you. You are as deeply embedded in the love of God as Jesus is embedded in the love of God. And it has nothing to do with your performance as a Christian. It has everything to do with the cross where God sealed his love for you forever. Let this world do what it does to us. In this world, it's so wrong. But in this world, you just, you don't count. And neither do I. And this whole world is organized to your disadvantage in terms of race, in terms of class, in terms of access, insiderness, privilege, and so forth. And some of us feel that very keenly. This world is lying to you when it trivializes you. Don't you believe that? You open up the Bible, you read Romans 8. This is, this is your story here. This is the meaning of your existence. God is rich with love, and he's a big spender. God does not limit his love for us. God unlimits his love for us. We're the ones who love carefully. <laughs> We're the ones who love in a calculating manner and we try to estimate in advance how much the relationship with this person is going to cost us, is this worth it, and so forth. That's how we love. But God loves us with God-sized love. Having given us his son, he plans to throw in with the deal everything. For example, so what, is all, what are all things that God is going to not fail to give us? Well, uh, for one, a sinless personality. <laughs> 
It's not long now, guys, till we'll never sin again. Talk about freedom. He's going to give you a sinless personality. He's going to give you an immortal body. It's going to be better than when you were 18. It's like 18 on steroids. Immortal. Your body will be incapable of pain and injury. You're going to live in a renewed universe. In the Revelation, God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. I mean, the universe is, is amazing right now, but guys, it's going to sparkle. And you're going to be the royalty in God's renewed, rehabilitated, rebuilt universe. When he polishes it up, oh man. And then you're going to be with a whole new human race. You're going to go through eternity Meet, make every person you meet throughout eternity is going to feel like your new best friend. Everyone will like you. <laughs> and we're going to be this highly diverse, amazing, we're going to be true to ourselves. The English language is going to be spoken forever. <laughs> so is Chinese, Spanish, Swahili. We, God does not despise our culture making. God redeems and preserves and perfects our culture making. The book of Revelation chapter 21 says, the kings of the earth, that is the culture leaders, will bring into the holy city the glory and honor of the nation. So a few years ago, Janie and I were in Beijing. We went to a restaurant that had been the home of a Chinese prince 300 years before. And it was Chinese food and Chinese dress, Chinese music, which I didn't understand. And, and I realized, oh, this human amazingness that I don't really identify with, but I know is really striking. This is a preview of coming attractions. So in my categories, California garage band music like Credence, it's, it's going to last forever, but it's going to be better. <laughs> human dance, human dress, human stories, human humor. He created us to be culture makers because he values what we create. And we're going to be in this renewed universe within the redeemed humanity that no census can count because there are so many of us. Every single person will like you. We will be ourselves and we will finally fit in. <laughs> we, won't, we will never walk into a room wondering, do I belong here? Does everybody else feel like an insider and I'm the only outsider? We're going to walk into a room and feel like, oh, this is family. And Jesus will be there. Now that's the all things. One for us, secured for us, guaranteed to us by the cross. Third question, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Oh my goodness, there's a lot of condemning religion in the world today, isn't there? Some of it, even in the name of Jesus. We don't like that. But here is where the love of God takes you. Now, um, Keith and Lori talked about my 
my, my hippie background. That's true, and I'm not sorry. So as an aging ex-hippie from California, here's how I, here are the categories that I use. I call it the fourfold path to spiritual enlightenment. Peace, baby. First step in the fourfold path, moral indifference. A lot of people live this way. Life is a game. There are no rules. All that matters is winning, and you are instruments for my self-magnification. Very cynical. You make your own rules. Right and wrong don't matter. Winning is all that matters. Some people living in moral indifference change. They cross the line from moral indifference to the second step in the fourfold path, moral concern. They look back at the people living in moral in, uh, indifference. They don't like what they see. They realize right and wrong actually matters. So they start caring about right living. They start living upright lives. They, look, they, 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 they want to be right on the issues. They want to vote for the right candidates and so forth. Some of those people living in moral concern move to the third step in the fourfold path, moral failure and despair. They discover virtue is not as simple as a choice because their passions, their background, their whole outlook, their impulses, um, all of that is just too strong. And sooner or later, they find out what they're really capable of. They're shocked by themselves. They're shocked. They can't just decide to stop sinning. And whenever we face ourselves honestly, we end up in moral despair. So moral indifference, moral concern, moral despair. Some people living in moral despair, some moral failures hear the gospel they look beyond themselves to Christ. Here's what they discover, hope. Hope in Christ. The gospel surprises them. The gospel says that God does not condemn moral failures who come to Christ. God justifies them. God pronounces them righteous. Righteous failures. That's who we are. And because it is God who justifies them, no one can de-justify them. There is no Supreme Court above God to reverse his verdict. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. That is what everyone in the world needs to know, that God receives the unworthy through Christ. So the people in moral indifference need to wake up, and the people in more of moral concern really need to fail. And the people of moral despair need to know what a friend we have in Jesus. And the people who hope in Christ, we just need to <laughs> just have a whole lot more fun. God chose sinners as his elect. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, those whom he chose? It is God who justifies. Why did God choose sinners? Because his deepest purpose is to honor his son as a successful savior. The father wants the son to shine as the world's greatest expert in hopeless cases. So God chooses as his elect, not the good people, but the bad people. He wasn't stuck with us, y'all. He got first dibs and he chose us. To show that Jesus can save anybody. So 
Verse 34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's already final between the Father and the Son. They are in complete agreement about this. Therefore, your sin, my sin, though extremely serious, cannot keep us from the love of God. God's whole point is to embrace sinners. So, Whatever baggage you're carrying around from your past, you can bring all of it and lay it at the feet of Jesus. He can take it. He's a specialist. He's a professional. He's good at it. You can trust him. He's at the right hand of God, and he's there for you. So when, you know, the, the negativity gets going in our minds, these dark and forbidding thoughts, these invasive thoughts of self-condemnation and self-hatred and despair. That happened to Martin Luther, the reformer, a lot. He knew how to fight back. Here's what he said. When the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sin. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say, I am a sinner with your own sword, I will slit your throat, for Christ died for sinners." As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of Christ my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So, Satan, when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me. You comfort me immeasurably. <laughs> Take that, devil. When those accusing thoughts would torment you and send you to hell early, you argue back. You fight back with the gospel. And the devil will be reeling under the impact. Fourth and final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, Paul then sort of inventories all the enemies of our happiness. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, for starters. And his whole point is, when we go, not if, not if, when we go through these horrible experiences, does that prove God no longer loves us? So he, he comes up with this list of possibilities. And guys, the whole point is, that's life for people God loves. I can't see any prosperity gospel here. Verse 36, for your sake, that is, on account of you, that is, because we're following Jesus. We're not running from him. We're not despising him. We love the Lord. That's why we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Sheep to be slaughtered? What? The world as one vast slaughterhouse. It isn't pretty, but it's true to life. Verse 37, but in all these things, not in some, but in all, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So when we suffer, we weep, 
when we suffer, we feel it, but the love of God is greater than all our pain, and he will not let us go. So we are more than conquerors, not by heroic willpower. We are more than conquerors by going through living hell, and the love of God keeps us true. Not our love for God, but God's love for us. So we're weak, bewildered, injured, and to our own surprise, we get back up on our feet again, and we find ourselves saying, man, I have no idea what just happened to me. That was horrible. But one thing it can't be is the hatred of God. God loves me. That's the bedrock under my feet. Even as I'm getting beaten up by life, God must have a loving and redemptive purpose in this somehow. So I'm going to trust him. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. I'm going to find out how God is going to redeem this mess because he will. God is faithful. And nothing, not even this, is going to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's how we're going to live 2019, by his grace for his glory. Here's a true story. Robert Bruce, minister in the Church of Scotland, 1631, he was having breakfast with his family in Edinburgh. I don't know how he knew this, but suddenly he realized he was going to die. So he said to his family, I've had breakfast with you this morning. I'm going to have dinner with Jesus tonight. <laughs> he said, open up the Bible. They had a big family Bible. Cast me up the eighth of Romans, he said. His daughter read these words that we've just read. He put his hand on the page of Romans 8. He said, I die believing these words. That's a conqueror. So we're not victims. We're not going to solve all of our problems. We're not going to evade all suffering. We are not going to achieve perfect control. But we're going to, by his grace, for his glory, we're going to believe in the love of God moment by moment, day by day, throughout 2019, because his reality is just there. He's got us. He's got us. He's holding in his hands. Our sufferings, therefore, are not robbing us of our future. Our sufferings are taking us into more and more the love of God in our future. And they always will. So let's believe it. Let's live and let's die believing these words. Amen? Amen. Amen. God be with you. This message by Ray Ortland was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Ray serves as the lead pastor for Emmanuel Nashville.